0: During the First World War, the Ottoman Empire established a wide network of camps to house prisoners of war from the Allied powers. Like most, the conditions were often poor, the treatment often harsh, and the complexes often established in some of the most remote, rural and desolate landscapes. Yozgat was one such camp, compromising a small collection of buildings in a rural town commandeered by the Ottoman army to house British officers. Whilst its conditions were not the harshest, nor its prisoners the most dangerous. It became the scene for one of the most bizarre tales of escape that the First World War and just about any incarceration anywhere in the world would ever see, involving buried treasure, a Ouija board and an audacious pair of pranksters with a strong desire to get home. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 7, Episode 8. I'm the host, Ben, as always. This week we've got a little longer episode, so I'm going to jump more or less straight into it. do just want to give a quick heads up to any uh, patron members. Uh, I'm currently organising a live stream for the end of this month, and I'll be posting about it on the Patreon towards the end of this week, so maybe like at the end of this week you might want to check out on there and see the details if you're interested. But anyway, enough of that. As I say, this episode's a little longer, so we could try and get straight into it. This episode is called Escape from Yozgat, the Spooks of Jones and Hill. In the autumn of 1914, three months after the outbreak of the First World War in Europe, battle on the Middle Eastern Front exploded when the Ottoman Empire entered alongside the Central Powers, drawing Mesopotamia and the Persian Gulf into the theatre. The British, in particular, had one eye on the territory under their own empire – and one eye on the territory of the Ottomans, whilst the Russians had a vested interest in their own front. By the end of the year, the Persian Gulf was in the hands of the British and the Russians, and the march continued throughout 1915 and into 1916. Though the Entente forces did not have their own way all the time, with the Ottomans fighting back on several fronts, handing the British one of the greatest wartime losses that they had ever, and would ever, suffer at the siege of Kut. In December of 1915, as many fronts saw a respite to the fighting due to the weather. The British Indian Army had been busy in what would be modern-day Iraq, pushing towards Baghdad when they were forced to retreat down the Tigris River by the Ottoman forces, who had halted the British march in Ctesiphon. The fighting had been hard for the British, and an almost 50% casualty rate had left them ineffective as an attacking power. As they drew back, the messy, ill-equipped retreat only made matters worse. On the 3rd of December, the British Indian forces arrived in Kut, bolstering the British troops stationed there to a number around 14,000, who were ordered to dig in and defend the city, allowing movement further south of the larger army. Kut was in a strong defensive position, but supply lines were stretched, and the generals all estimated that the defenders would only have enough supplies for around 60 days. The Ottoman forces arrived four days later on the 7th of December and laid siege to the city. Several relief attempts were made, and throughout December and January, the British troops managed to hold firm and even push back the Ottomans in several battles. But the tide turned against them severely towards the end of January, when Ottoman troops were reinforced, with almost 30,000 recruits, headed up by Khalil Pasha, the regional commander. As the siege drew on, supply problems hit, seeing starvation and ill health creep through the defending troops, and by April, food was scarce enough that the sick horses were routinely slaughtered for meat. The Royal Flying Corps attempted to airdrop supplies into the city, which was the first operation of its kind. But more often than not, they were less than successful as their accuracy was less than stellar, often landing the supplies in the hands of the Ottoman army instead. Typhus, beriberi, dysentery and scurvy tore through the city and eventually, after losing around 30,000 troops to the defence and relief operations, the British were forced to surrender. Immediately, command attempted to strike a deal for the release of the troops, which was promptly turned down by the Ottomans, who instead took around 13,000 prisoners, and after an immediate exchange of around 1,500, the remaining 11,500 were distributed throughout the prison camps of Turkey. The transportation of prisoners of war was a logistical challenge for the Ottoman troops, who were often ill-equipped in their own numbers and far from prepared to herd thousands of prisoners hundreds of miles. This lack of provisions, mixed with a healthy dose of cruelty only seen during wartime, led to what amounted to death marches across the empire. Prisoners were beaten and whipped in efforts to spur them forwards, and when those too sick to walk dropped to the floor, they were left to rot by the roadside. Numbers are difficult to pin down, but it's estimated that almost 65% of the captured British troops never made it home, having perished on the long walk north or in the camps shortly afterward. The prison camps of Turkey, of which there were nine principal sites, were a mixed and complicated bag of conditions. Some lacked basic medical facilities and forced the prisoners to work to their deaths, whilst others were relatively comfortable in comparison, and those that wound up in a good camp often called their time there the hotel life. The Turkish commandants similarly differed in their brutality or compassion, and British troops of higher rank were treated significantly better than the lowly privates. Officers were not expected to work, and were even paid a salary, whilst others of the rank and file were ground into sickness and death in hard-working labour camps. Even the physical makeup of the camps varied considerably, and while some resembled a recognisable prison, others were a loose collection of buildings, commandeered by the Ottoman army as something of a roughshod solution to the sudden influx of prisoners. Situated 4,000 feet above sea level five days away from the nearest train station at Angora, sat the prison camp of Yozgat, a hodgepodge mix of detached buildings, including schools, hospitals and old family homes. It had taken its prisoners two months of solid marching to arrive, eating nothing but rock-hard biscuits, made more of dirt than of anything edible, and drinking stagnant puddle water. At times, the trek had been interspersed with short train rides or, for those lucky enough to have had anything left to barter with, a donkey ride, but for most, the march was almost entirely made on foot. Once they arrived at their destination, at the end of June 1916, they found that Camp Yozgat, though suffering from a continuous scarcity of supplies, was relatively comfortable in comparison to many other camps. And though the floors were solid stone and the rooms completely unfurnished, officers weren't expected to work, and those in Yozgat were afforded a few luxuries, in that they were able to move around in the camps with a degree of freedom as well as stage Christmas pantomimes and play hockey. At least, they were allowed this once the vast collection of disease and sickness they had suffered throughout the siege and March had finally receded. Visually, it was little familiar to a prison at all. There were no high walls or barbed wire fences around the camp to keep anyone from attempting to escape, and though there were sentries posted to keep watch on the perimeter, they spent most of their time sleeping. Instead, the commandant, an elusive middle-aged man named Bimbashi Kiyazin Bey threatened violence against those left behind if anyone did try to escape. This created a good deterrent, and the desolate rural location did the rest. The landscape surrounding Yozgat was a bleak wasteland, jagged mountains made up the horizon, lying on the distant edge of 350 miles of rocky desert in all directions. Once full of life, Deforestation over the centuries had led to harsh environments, with freezing, snow-filled winters seeing temperatures plummet to minus 5 degrees centigrade. In the summer, the air dried out to a constant 30 degrees centigrade, baking the mud in the ground and creating a dust bowl that would dance on the unhindered winds. A march from the camp undertaken by a prisoner, especially one who would undoubtedly be entirely under-equipped, would have been one of almost guaranteed suicide. 2nd Lieutenant Elias Henry Jones was just one of the 100 British officers that arrived in Yozgat that June. Time stood still for Jones, whose wife had escaped back home with his child many months prior, and now all he had ahead of him were many dull evenings, which needed to be filled with something to keep himself occupied and his mind from slipping into madness. Fortunately for Jones, he would come up with a novel way to do exactly that, though it was perhaps helped along with just a tinge of madness. Born in Aberystwyth, Wales, in 1883, Elias Henry Jones was the eldest of six children. His father was a Welsh philosopher and his mother a Scottish housewife. His father had originally left school at 12 years old and apprenticed under his own father as a cobbler, but when he won a scholarship to the Glasgow University, with one eye on becoming a clergyman, he left Wales... Graduated from university, attended Oxford, and eventually returned to help establish the University of Wales and campaign for affordable education. In 1891, he took a post in a Scottish university, moving the whole family north, including Elias Henry, who went on to study psychology, Latin, mathematics, and history at Glasgow University. Following a master's degree at Oxford, he practised as a barrister and, like all good colonial British of the time, took his services east moving to Burma and working as a magistrate. In 1913, he returned to Wales to marry his childhood sweetheart, the daughter of a prominent bacteriologist, and they soon took off in order to settle and start their family back in Burma. When the war rolled round two years later, Jones volunteered as a gunner in the British Indian Army Reserve of Officers. His regiment's early successes in Mesopotamia saw him promoted to second lieutenant before they wound up in Cook where he was captured after the fall of the siege that saw so many rounded up by the Ottoman army. The near 2,000 mile march to Yozgat had been hard on him, but his reasonably high rank had proven to be a huge boon. Now in the camp, he was forced to room with seven or eight other officers, all of which were paying rent to the Ottoman government for the privilege. Their amenities included razor-thin walls with little resistance to the weather and a pit that was never emptied for the whole camp to use as a toilet. A month after their arrival, a further contingent of soldiers arrived, including the young officer Cedric Waters-Hill. Cedric Waters-Hill was born in 1891 in Queensland, Australia. He attended Brisbane Grammar School, where he was considered a sluggish student, but good-natured and honourable. After graduating, he apprenticed on a sheep farm in New Zealand with an engineering firm related to the machinery of sheep shearing. Returning to Queensland, his love of flying began rearing its head, and he built several gliders, a hobby that was only one step less eccentric than his other pastime of learning magic tricks, an interest that struck him after seeing a conjuring show by the American magician Nate Leipzig. After the outbreak of war, Hill sailed to England and enlisted with the Royal Flying Corps, where he was dispatched to Egypt in order to undertake bombing runs, a task that he excelled in until his plane was downed in Romany in May of 1916. In desperation, he took the machine gun, still intact after the crash landing, to fight off his would-be captors for over six hours. His valiant stand capitulated soon after the gun's ammunition depleted, however, and he was handed over to the Ottoman army and marched to Yozgat, where he arrived alongside the influx of prisoners to the mountain camp. Soon after their arrival to Yozgat, the prisoners found that food became almost as scarce as their supposed salaries from the Ottoman government, which had not been paid since before the march to camp. On the flip side, as their supplies dwindled, the overall conditions of their incarceration did slowly begin to improve. For the first month or so of their stay at Yozgat, the officers had been under a strict lockdown, but bit by bit they had been afforded the ability to go out into the camp's surrounding grounds for short walks under an armed guard. As the likelihood of any of the officers escaping dwindled, so too did the Turkish captors' enthusiasm for keeping them locked up, and soon the prisoners were allowed to visit local bazaars to buy and cook their own food. Before long, a full-scale camp economy had evolved, as carpenters built furniture from packing crates, cobblers mended shoes, and weavers darned holes in uniforms. Ways to pass the time were created from junk, including a roulette table built from an old door, and when decks of cards became available, Countless nights were filled with games of imaginary, high-stakes gambling. To call it a normal life was perhaps a bit bold, but over time a sense of camp normality emerged, and life wound on under this guise of everyday banality. One of the problems that became easy to overlook, given the host of more immediate issues, was the ability of the prisoners to receive communication from the outside world. Post came sporadically, and months on end could pass without anyone receiving word from home at all. Letters and postcards would be delivered with the guards' discretion, and that was if they ever reached the isolated camp in the first place. Information on the ongoing war was scarce and highly sought after, censored as it was from any incoming mail that did reach the camp, and even the smallest and vaguest hints of good news would go a long way to raising the morale of the imprisoned officers. Jones had been in Yozga for almost eight months when he received a postcard from home, His aunt had sent him a short few paragraphs on her recent experiences with what Jones called spooking. At the beginning of the 20th century, spiritualism had somewhat faded in popularity. However, following the colossal loss of life from the global war, the practice found itself once more reinstated as a popular belief, and many of the practices of the mediums were very much back in vogue. The spooking that his aunt had mentioned was essentially table-sitting at a séance, and Jones figured it a perfect new way to kill some time for the long, slow evenings. That evening, when everyone was passing around their news, Jones suggested that they get together and try a session of spooking for themselves. Several men agreed to the idea, and the next night, Jones was joined by Doc O'Farrell, a bacteriologist, Little, a geologist, Price, a submariner, Tudway, a naval officer, and Matthews, a scientist. Jones had spent the day knocking together a small seance table made from packing crates with the letters of the alphabet scribbled out on pieces of paper, roughly torn into squares and arranged in a circle around the makeshift tabletop. In the centre, he had placed an upturned glass drinking tumbler, a vessel that had originally started life as a jar for preserves. Price and Matthews were passed pencil and paper and given note-taking duty should any messages be passed on from the other side, and Doc and Jones sat on either side of the table a sole finger, each placed on the glass tumbler. There they sat and waited. Doc and I closed our eyes and waited, fingers resting lightly on the glass, arms extended. For perhaps fifteen minutes there was a tense silence, and our arms grew unendurably numb. Nothing happened. It was a disappointing start to the proceedings, but not wholly unexpected, Nevertheless, the men set about swapping around duties, with every configuration of pairs taking a turn placing their fingers on the glass. As the night wore on and nothing manifested, Doc began calling out questions to the hushed room. Who are you? said the Doc in sepulchral tones. And forthwith, I was conscious of a tilting and a straining in the glass. And then, very slowly, it began to move in gradually widening circles. It touched a letter and the whole company craned their necks to see it. This excitement was brief. The glass touched on the letter B and R before coming to a premature standstill. Still, it had been enough to spur on a degree of excitement, and the group continued to try and communicate with these spooks over and over again for several nights following. In a vain effort to get anything to happen, they swapped the tabletop out for a metal tray, hoping that the smoother surface might have facilitated some form of movement. But it was all to no avail, and the group either found themselves staring at an unmoving glass or, in a brief stab of excitement, scribbling down a few nonsense letters that spelled nothing, with the glass stopping as quickly as it had started. As the days passed and interest waned, members of the group did begin to drop out. But with so little to do, a surprising number found themselves glued to the immobile tumbler. After two weeks, gatherer and no-nonsense officer joined the group. He had told Jones that he didn't much care for this sort of thing, though for someone with no interest, he had a surprising amount of knowledge on the subject, and even brought along his own Ouija board that he had made in secret a few months earlier. Sitting down at the table, he took over as the principal medium and began barking out questions to the room, now filled with curious onlookers. Over time, slowly, the glass began to move, and furthermore, it began to make sense. Gatherer had been asking simple questions with yes or no answers, something the spooks were clearly more adept at answering. By the end of the evening, little of any use or interest had been gleaned from the board, but the group's enthusiasm had been ignited. Discussion over the following days rarely veered far from spiritualist matters, and an excitement brewed over what questions should be asked next time. Gatherer was invited back, but sadly his lack of enthusiasm rang true, and he rarely made the time to visit Jones's room to help out. Still, the original group continued to try, but for another week, they got little back in return for their efforts. Sitting down for what everyone had decided was to be one last try, Jones and Doc placed their fingers on the glass and began asking questions. For the last time, said the Doc, who are you? Slowly, the glass moved across the board, and even more exciting, it made sense, spelling the name Sally. Leaning into the table with an intense stare, the group fell to a hush as the doc asked aloud, "'Have you anything to tell us?' Sally had quite a lot to tell us. She made love to Alec Matthews, much to his delight, in the most barefaced way, and then coolly informed him that she preferred sailor boys. Price beamed and replied in fitting terms. She talked seriously to the doc, who had murmured, out of jealousy I expect, that Sally seemed a brazen hussy, and warned us to be careful what we said in the presence of a lady. That presence of a lady startled us. Most of us hadn't seen a lady for nearly three years. She accused me of being unbecomingly dressed. Pyjamas and a blanket, quite respectable for a prisoner. Then she complained of feeling tired, made one or two most unladylike remarks when we pressed her to tell us more, and went away. It was a remarkable evening, and the prisoners went to bed that night with a renewed vigour for the game spooking. Sally had been a revelation within the walls of the camp, and people had been thrilled with her contact, discussing how the glass had moved and who the mysterious woman could have been. Jones, however, went to sleep with a slight feeling of unease, as Sally had been nothing more than the figment of his own invention, and he now had to figure out what he should do next. Following their successful contact with Sally, Jones's imaginary spook, the camp erupted with fresh chatter about the seances. Everyone seemed to have an opinion on who or what it was, ranging from the deeply sceptical to the converted spiritualist. Either way, in the vacuum of information that was the prison camp, the new messenger was seen as a breath of fresh air, and enjoying it himself, Jones decided to stick with the ploy for a few more days, and then come clean to the group, taking his punishment in good nature. The following night, Doc and Jones sat back down and once again spoke to the spooks. This time, Sally was joined by several other characters. In order to cover himself from suspicion, Jones blamed the movement of the glass on Doc, who naturally pointed the finger straight back at Jones, creating a nice bit of confusion amongst the onlookers, who were still not sure what to believe. When Gatherer came back to see their progress a few days later, he tried to speak to the spook, who promptly told him to go to hell. Affronted by the unruly spirit, he up and left in a huff. But for Jones... The rejection of Gatherer to the séance was an important exercise in transferring authority to the spirit world and converting his audience to true believers. As the days ticked by and the séances grew ever more interesting, Jones slowly realised how big his little game had got on him. What he had started as a bit of fun had become an important aspect of people's lives overnight. So desperate to forget their situation, people were vulnerable and Jones had unwittingly tapped into a deep subconscious desire. He had offered an escape, and everything had gotten quite out of hand. The spooks were a decidedly jovial lot. They kept us in touch with the outside world. We walked with them down Piccadilly, we dined with them in the troc, and tried to hear with them the music of the band. We conversed with Shackleton on his South Polar expedition, with men in the trenches in France, and with ships on the wide seas. From cabinet meetings to the goodnight chat between Beth Grieg and her girlfriend, nothing was hidden from us. There was no place to which we could not go, nothing we could not see with the spook's eyes or hear with his ears. A successful night at the spook board was the nearest we could get outside our dreams to a breath of freedom. We forgot our captivity, our wretchedness, our anxieties, and we lived joyously in the fourth dimension." Caught up in this awkward position, Jones decided not to confess and to keep the fraud running for as long as he could. Besides, he was no longer the only one at it, and as word had spread of what had been going on at their seances, other groups had started their own spiritualist circles, with one group, run by a pair of officers known as Bishop and Nightingale, getting results over in one of the outbuildings known as Hospital House, who, much to Jones's amusement, had been in contact with the enigmatic and quite non-existent Sally. Whilst people spent their days debating the nature of the conversations they had been having, Jones spent his days plotting how to keep everything under his hat and inventing new conversations he could hold at the table that night. He suggested pairing himself with other members of the group, and when they sat down and placed their fingers on the glass, he either spelt nonsense or he didn't move the glass at all. This had the useful effect of suggesting a special mediumistic bond between him and Doc, and at the same time it kept the sceptics' suspicion firmly undecided, and on both men. A series of tests were devised by the most sceptical, who wanted a bit more proof before they were willing to believe everything that Jones and the doc were pushing. Until now, Jones had been relying on his memory to recall the positions of the letters on the board, even when he was blindfolded. But in order to help him get through the coming trials, he carefully notched the edges of the tabletop, allowing him to feel out his position relative to the letters, no matter what situation was thrown his way. Jones put on a convincing display, and when the testers suggested it was nothing more than a complex memory trick, he offered them to try it for themselves under the same conditions. All had a go, and all failed miserably at replicating Jones's show, which led them to the resignation that if it was a trick, then it was difficult enough to have required a significant amount of practice, something which everyone knew was an impossibility within the camp. With the skeptics dropping their suspicions considerably, Jones then worked on converting the entire camp to his spiritualist experiment. He began taking questions from the growing audience members and he essentially taught himself how to cold-read, asking leading questions and having people create their own stories that he would be all too happy to embellish once they had given up enough information. Oftentimes, questions naturally gravitated towards the war situation or news from home, and so ordinary daily conversation became a treasure trove of information for Jones, who listened in, and stored away tidbits here and there to be recalled days or weeks later as fresh information plucked from the other. Technical information was a little more challenging, but fortunately, Jones was surrounded by officers, and just as he listened in on their daily gossip, he did the same for the more logistical discussions on the war, allowing him to recall information at a later date that most thought a magistrate and gunner would have never been privy, or have even understood. When things got too hot, the questions too difficult to answer, Jones would introduce a spook to the conversation known as Silas P. Warner. Silas was a belligerent angry ghost who would force his way into the picture in order to abuse and, very conveniently, misdirect the discussion. Everyone hated Silas, which was, of course, precisely why Jones had invented him in the first place. Jones also quickly learnt that with the camp on board as believers, a strong positive bias coursed through their acceptance allowing him to divine the future of the war with some success. For every detail that he got right, the spooks were lauded as savants, whilst any misses were quickly forgotten, with no one too keen on dwelling on any negative feelings. If things had gotten out of hand before, after several months of seances, the whole thing had gone completely off the rails. The only way Jones could justify his continued deception now was to accept that it gave everyone something positive to talk about and look forward to. Equally, He was careful not to play on people's emotions too heavily and all of the spooks he introduced were impersonal characters unattached to any of the prisoners in the audience. For Jones, he believed that he had brought a healthy form of spiritualism to the camp, one not obsessed with tragic conversations between the loved ones of the living and the dead or snivelling sentimentalism, as he put it, but a spiritualism of positivity and hope for the future. Meanwhile, over in Hospital House, Nightingale and Bishop had been having their own fun. News of flying washstands, broken windows and collapsing chandeliers had been making its way across camp. So Jones, who knew the whole thing had to be a hoax, decided to pay them a visit and see what was going on. And with a keen eye on deception, it didn't take him long to see the hoax. A footprint in the dust on the windowsill in the adjoining room and a strong effort on misdirection were dead giveaways to Jones, who was, by now, perhaps the only man in the camp watching the scenes with a critical eye. In truth, the antics going on in Hospital House only helped Jones. In comparison to his humdrum seances, breaking windows and flying furniture was truly wild. And just like that, what had once been so hard for so many to swallow was now part of the fabric of normality. With all the fuss being made throughout the camps surrounding the seances, it wasn't long before the authorities caught wind of something strange happening. At the top of the chain was the camp commandant, Bimbashi Kiyazin Bey, a tall middle-aged officer who was keen to make the most of the soft position that he had been given to wind down his military career. Carrying an injury and with greying hair, he kept himself out of the public eye and had little to do directly with the camp's inhabitants, preferring to rule from the shadows, and for the first several months he did not even make himself seen. All communication went through the camp interpreter, Moise Eskenazi, otherwise known to the British as Pimple. Pimple was a young man around 20 years old, especially short of stature, and was constantly squinting through a thick pair of pince-nez due to being incredibly short-sighted. Universally disliked in the camp, he spoke Turkish, French, German and English, and his best trait, as far as the British were concerned, was the ease in which he would accept a bribe if anyone wished to speak with the Commandant or the Commandant wished to make any orders known to the camp, everything passed through Pimple. And so it was that Pimple found himself approaching Jones to ask him about spooks. Curious about what Jones had been doing at the Seances, Jones invited Pimple to tea to explain the situation, or at least a version of the situation. Unsure of any endgame, Jones felt sure that at the very least the camp authorities threw up a new challenge, and if he could assert a degree of authority over them, the same way that he had managed with the other prisoners, he might be able to curry some favour, or gain some advantage with the guards. That night, he sat down with the interpreter, and explained how, whilst he was stationed in Burma, he had been captured by a group of headhunters, and had made a bargain with a local witch doctor who had taught him the knowledge of his magical powers, including the ability to read minds. Pimple was... Fortunately for Jones, a fairly superstitious young man, and he seemed to buy the tale outright, handing over a list of questions before he left that he wanted Jones to ask the spirits during his next seance. The questions were asked, and the answers produced by the spook, who, with the great satisfaction of all, spent plenty of time ribbing Pimple. When Jones handed the answers over, he was sure the interpreter's interest had been piqued, and when Pimple asked him to repeat the process a further two times, Jones agreed readily, privately writing down any information he could glean from Pimple's private life that crept into the questions. It became clear to everyone just how readily the authorities had bought the whole affair after a new decree was declared weeks later, making it an offence within the camp to pass on any information gleaned from the seances in any of their letters home. Shortly after, Pimple explained that the Commandant had taken the matter very seriously given that he was already a keen believer in the occult who regularly visited card readers in the nearby village. Jones's new spiritualist empire did hit a speed bump only two weeks later, however, when a contingent of 28 new rank-and-file British military showed up at the camp, forcing a third building, an old schoolhouse, to be opened as part of the camp and the original spooking group to be split up, including the all-important Doc, who went over to the schoolhouse. This put an abrupt end to Jones's spooking, though Nightingale and Bishop continued on over in their own building. Aware that the whole thing was a fraud, Jones approached the pair in August that year to both admit his own hoax and learn more about their version. It turned out that Nightingale and Bishop were directly analogous to Jones and Doc, in that Bishop had no idea what was going on and was little more than a pawn in Nightingale's game. Nightingale had gone one step further than Jones, however, by recruiting another officer, Cedric Hill, who would manifest all manner of physical phenomena, such as the broken window from before, whenever Nightingale signalled to him. After the mutual confessions were given up, Jones then let Nightingale in on his new plan. To hook the Commandant and have him dance into the prisoner's will, though to call it a plan was perhaps a bit of a stretch. For now, at least, Jones suggested that they keep up with their spooking and hopefully an opportunity would arise for them to spring a trap of some kind. As luck would have it, just such an opportunity arose within the month, when two officers found an old revolver buried in the grounds. The two officers, Cochrane and Lloyd, had been out on the hockey pitch when they had come across a leather strap half buried in the dirt. Digging it up, they found the strap was attached to an old Smith & Wesson Armenian service revolver, completely rusted now and out of commission, but perhaps valuable within the peculiar camp economy nonetheless. Squirrelling it away, the two officers took it back to their room and tucked it away under the bed, speaking of it only in whispered tones. Days later, Pimple approached Jones tentatively and asked him, in a slightly self-conscious tone, whether or not Jones's spook had the ability to unearth buried treasure. Jones hedged his bets and asked him if he wanted spirits to help him find an Armenian treasure. This greatly impressed Pimple, who coughed up a host of information about how they'd been digging all over the schoolhouse garden. Jones assured him it would be a difficult task, but agreed to grant him a seance over in Hospital House a few days later, when the moon would be at its most amenable, and immediately he set about devising a plan to capture Pimple and the Commandant. The initial problem that Jones could see was that by fooling Pimple, he would place himself in an awkward position. He wanted to stitch up Pimple and hold a fake seance, but he needed to do it in such a way that wouldn't bring suspicion back down upon his nor Nightingale's everyday seances with the other inmates. The best solution he could come up with was to involve the other inmates in the deception, explaining to them that he wanted to trick Pimple exclusively. Fortunately, with the disdain the majority of the camp held for the authorities, They were perfectly on board with playing a practical joke, without questioning Jones' mediumship on any other level. Jones told the prisoners of a plan that made the deception perfectly obvious to those in the know and then went to visit Nightingale in secret to devise an entirely different plan that would keep his original efforts well concealed from anyone watching from any similarities in the practices. Unwilling to go ahead and bury the small stock of gold that he had managed to acquire for himself, Jones instead approached Cochrane and asked him about the old revolver, and after telling him that he wanted it to snare Pimple with a hoax seance, Cochrane gladly handed it over, and Jones promptly reburied it. Then, on the evening of the seance, he explained, via the spook, that the treasure was likely to be guarded by arms, before dramatically standing up and leading Pimple around the grounds in a full-blown fake trance, chanting welsh poetry and scattering wood shavings into the wind when they came upon the spot of the buried revolver he fell to the ground in a faint and pimple along with the camp's cook who had tagged along with the official began digging furiously uncovering the revolver their enthusiasm multiplied and jones and the rest of the prisoners watched on all day with much satisfaction as the interpreter spent the entire evening slaving over digging an enormous trench in the ground in search of imaginary treasure. At the end of the day, Pimple had found no gold, but he had seen enough to believe that Jones was a powerful medium, much to the officer's delight. The treasure hunt had been a great deal of fun for everyone in the camp, but for Jones it had been the first step in a much larger plan. For some time, he'd been considering an escape but knew it would be all but impossible to dash out into the sunset with no hope for survival he knew also that any plan along those lines would have led to severe punishment for anyone left behind instead he needed to come up with a plan that would make his captors compliant or at least implicate them in the plan and though it was in its earliest stages jones felt pretty confident that it would be the spooks that would help him in this process the pimple been visiting Hospital House frequently since the treasure hunt to partake in further seances, and night after night, Jones had been using the spook to abuse him regularly. When Pimple finally lost his temper with the mouthy spirits, the spooks threatened him and told him that he would suffer for his outburst. That night, Jones poisoned his cocoa with a dose of calomel, giving him a serious gastric problem later that night. Afterwards, Pimple was convinced in the spook, and almost entirely subordinate to its demands. He sought the mysterious buried treasure still, but the spook was making him wait, primarily because Jones wanted to draw out the commandant himself, who was proving much trickier than he had hoped. A game of patience was underway, and Jones was made to wait several months before he was finally summoned to the commandant's office for an audience with the man himself. In a risky move, Jones suggested that he already knew why the commandant had called for him, and he told him that he knew all about the murdered Armenian and the buried treasure and of how the commandant wanted his help to find it via the aid of his spirit guides. Stunned, the commandant admitted as much, and the two swore to a pact of secrecy in order to protect both men. Jones asked for one simple favour, to enlist a second medium and the help of several others to act as assistants. As soon as he left the room, he headed over to the hospital house to speak to the séance hoaxer Cedric Hill to offer him the position of the second spirit medium. Hill readily agreed and the two discussed plans, concluding on six main points. 1. So far as we ourselves were concerned, to risk everything and go any length to get away. 2. But on no account to implicate anyone else in the camp. We must so arrange the escape that the Turks would have no excuse whatsoever for strafing the others. 3. To take nobody into our confidence until it was absolutely necessary. There were plenty of men we could trust not to give us away intentionally, but any of them might make a slip which would defeat our plans. 4. When possible, to discuss every move beforehand and to follow the line agreed on. 5. If circumstances prevented such discussion... Hill was to follow my lead blindly, without question or alteration. And six, if, or when it came to a bolt across country, Hill was to take charge. The two men shook hands and began plotting their great escape. Over the following weeks, Pimple continued to attend seances, and Jones slowly eked out the details of the treasure that they were seeking. Before the houses of Yozgat were a prison camp, They had belonged to families of Armenians who had been murdered by the Ottoman army in order for their homes to be taken and repurposed. Rumour had it that on the night before the butchery, the wife of the owner of the schoolhouse had gone out into the garden with her children and buried £18,000 worth of gold and jewels somewhere in the garden. At one seance, the Ouija board had suggested Hill as the best fit for the second medium, but warned Pimple that Hill would not come easily as he liked to keep his talents for spirit contact, something of a secret. Unsurprisingly, when Pimple visited Hill the next day, he was reluctant to agree to the proposition. Though, of course, he capitulated in the end, exactly as he and Jones had already planned. A further seance recommended that Jones and Hill be removed from the camp and tossed into prison together in order for their minds to fall into tune with one another a ruse concocted by the two men so that they would be better able to plan their escape at all hours. This suggestion didn't go down particularly well with the commandant who was unwilling to risk his own position in the camp by showing favouritism and so it fell to Jones and Hill to get themselves thrown into prison for real. During another seance, the two men had to spook out them for sending telepathic messages to a third medium somewhere outside of the camp. In order to make it believable, the spook had Pimple examine a blank piece of paper and then fold it up and pass it around the mediums in a form of ritual. Hill, utilising his talent for magic tricks, used sleight of hand to exchange the blank piece of paper for a forged letter, supposedly written to the third unnamed medium several days prior, so that when the paper arrived back in the hands of Pimple, the writing had, for all intents and purposes, appeared miraculously. Pimple took the news that Jones and Hill had been communicating with an outside source straight back to the Commandant, who immediately charged the two men with being in telepathic communication on military matters with persons outside. And he did this completely unaware that the whole time he was being led along by the victims themselves. Whilst waiting for their official arrest, green-stamped by the War Office of Constantinople, Hill set about composing a pair of letters in Armenian using the help of a secret Armenian to English dictionary that one of the British officers had kept to himself. He wrapped each letter around a single Turkish golden coin, which he then buried around the schoolhouse grounds. Jones, meanwhile, let Doc in on the whole scheme, showing him the transcripts from all of the sets showing him the transcripts from all of the sounds held with pimple that the interpreter had taken down in minute detail. Pleased as punch at what he called the ramp of the century, he swore himself to secrecy and pledged to help in any way that he could. The next day, Jones and Hill were called to the Commandant, who laid down his sentence upon the mediums for their outside communications and tossed them in solitary confinement together in a separate building known as the Colonel's House. The thing is, the sentence had all along been dictated by the spook. As far as the Commandant and Pimple were concerned, They had pleased it in carrying out its orders, and as promised, the treasure would soon be theirs. It had been a further gamble to get there, but finally the two officers had their privacy, in which they could plan their next moves at leisure. Chiefly among their first discussions was how they could ensnare the Commandant in order to have him collude in their escape, and they to have the evidence. They were well aware that in order to save his own skin, The commandant would happily throw Pimple under the bus along with every other official at Yozgat. They needed to find a way for him to commit on a level that was as yet seemingly impossible. It was now that Hill unleashed his own masterstroke in the form of a Kodak pocket camera that he had borrowed from a fellow officer. Later, he had swiped three films from under the nose of the Yozgat mail sensor using his typical sleight of hand tricks. It was exactly what they needed. If they could photograph the Commandant out on a treasure hunt with two British mediums, they would have their proof. It all sounded so easy, but it would have to be done under the greatest secrecy, as if they were spotted taking a photograph of the Commandant, as Jones put it, everything would go smash. Hill, who was always keen to exercise his ability with magic tricks, was designated as cameraman, and daily he began practising removing the camera from his pocket, aiming, shooting and concealing it once more, all in a smooth motion so as to be undetectable to anyone paying attention. Jones' role was to pose the group to get them all in frame and then engage them in a lively discussion in order to drown out the click of the shutter. With the camera plan in motion, they now just needed to find a way to drag the treasure hunt far enough away from the camp for them to make their escape. First, however, they needed to take care of some creature comforts and in one of the first seances to take place in their new prison house, Jones and Hill had the spook demand wood for their fire, oil for their burners, and proper food to be cooked for them daily. By now, more or less whatever the spook demanded was catered for as soon as possible, and by the following day, the two men were living in relative luxury. One week later, at 5.30pm on the 14th of March, the first seance related to the treasure hunt took place in their new surroundings. Among dim candlelight the two men got to work on their grand plan and introduce a new character from the spirit realm, the Armenian who had buried his treasure, known only to the spook as Triple O. Triple O was, of course, a fake name to cover for the fact that Jones and Hill had no idea of the man's real name. Over the next two sances, they began to seed the ground for Pimple and the Commandant by teasing them with their dreams of treasure. Before Turkey declared war, Triple O began to bury his gold, He hid it in a place known only to himself, nor did he ever tell anybody to his dying day. He was afraid to tell his relations in case they might reveal the secret under torture. Well, when Turkey entered the war, Tripolo contributed a large sum of gold to the Armenian Association and realised his debts as far as possible. When the Armenians joined the Russians, he knew a massacre was likely. His difficulty then was this. If he told nobody where the money was hidden, then he might be killed and his family would derive no benefit from his wealth. On the other hand, if he told his family, they might reveal the secret under pressure. The Ouija board then went on to explain that the still unnamed Armedian had buried three clues that would lead to the treasure, each one wrapped around a sample of gold. The first would give the place from which they should begin measuring, the second one giving the distance to measure, and the third giving the direction. Triple O then supposedly went to three men, which the spook named Triple A, Triple Y and Triple K, and told each one the location of a single clue. On that cliffhanger, the séance ended, and Pimple and the Commandant were treated to another week of waiting before the next séance, when Jones and Hill entered into a trance talk that Jones described as the most ridiculous farmyard concert that mortal man ever listened to, before laying out a scene the spook had pulled straight from the future. We pretended to be describing a scene before our eyes, We were following a man who carried a letter. We described how the messenger passed through a door into a garden. He had great difficulty in closing the door for something was wrong with the latch. We followed him through the garden, past the trees and flowers and well, all of which were described. Into a house with a curious window that stood out four square at the front of the door. Thence up the steps, inside, through a small hall, up a staircase and into a bedroom, detailing the furniture and the pictures as we passed each article. We gave a minute description of the bedroom. The red carpet, the two ottomans, the position of the bed and the cupboard, and we were much struck by the enormous footstool on the right of the door. The wicker bag on the floor near the bed, and of the sword on the wall between two pictures. The messenger gave the letter to someone on the bed, whom we could not see clearly. We heard him call, and a lady came in, a lady with very beautiful hands. They went out together carrying a lantern. Another man joined them, with pick and shovel, then everything turned black. There was a pause in the trance talk for perhaps a minute. Then we cried out, and we saw the group again. They had been digging. We could see the hole by the lamplight. They were pulling things out of the hole. Boxes, they looked like. Yes, boxes! The man with the pick raised it above his head and smashed open a box. And gold, gold, gold. We said that so loud and so suddenly that together the pimple leapt to his feet. Then blackness again, and a reversal of the opening proceedings. We lapsed first into the unknown tongue, and thence through the guttural sounds to the groans and the little farmyard grunts with which we had begun. The house that they had described, that the spook explained as being in the future, was nothing less than the Commandant's house, once described to Jones by Doc, who had visited him on several occasions whilst acting as a doctor. Pimple was beside himself with joy. As far as he was aware, neither Jones nor Hill could possibly have known what the Commandant's house looked like, and they certainly could not have described it in such rich detail. Now all Pimple and the Commandant had to figure out was how they could attain the future gleaned to them by the Spook. Jones and Hill explained that they must gather as much information as they could from three men: A AA, A, Triple A, Triple Y, and Triple K. The latter two were easy enough to contact. They said they were already dead, and so it was a simple matter of conversing with them through the spirit board. Triple A, however, gave rise to a particular difficulty, in that he was still alive and working as a businessman in Constantinople. This, the spirit had explained previously, would cause significant difficulty, as the mediums would need to be near to him in order to read his thoughts successfully, without interruption. Fortunately, he did travel around for his work from time to time. Adalia, Tarsus, Alexandretta and Damascus were all cited as possible locations. All, not coincidentally, far away from Yozgat. For now, Y and K became the centre of the treasure hunt. Luckily, Triple K was a friendly enough chap in death and the helpful spirit agreed to lead Jones, Hill and Pimple to his buried clue the very next day, providing a distinct set of conditions were met by the group. Chiefly was the condition that only those physically present at the digging up of the clue would be allowed to share in the treasure, thus forcing the commandant to make an appearance. Triple K also gave several other conditions, that the mediums were to wear black, which conveniently would allow Jones and Hill to wear their black rainproof ponchos, the item of clothing which Hill found the easiest to conceal his camera inside, and that they weren't to be touched by anyone during the hunt in order to ensure that they would not be searched by any officials. Unfortunately, bad weather put an end to the hunt before it began, as the poor conditions were not at all conducive to photography. Therefore, Jones and Hill had the spook-advised postponement until nicer weather, owing to the fact that the mist in the air would have made the spook difficult for the mediums to see, given that he was quite misty himself. Unbelievably, the officials continued to buy this nonsense and they agreed to wait until the weather was brighter. Five days later, at noon on the 31st of March, with the sun shining in full, the hunt for Triple K's clue began. Suitably, the group met in the graveyard just outside of town where Jones and Hill fell deep into a trance and conversed with Triple K, who they told the officials was perched on one of the gravestones. Gathering that they should march up the hill, the group set out following the two mediums as they led the strange collection of men towards the gold coin that Hill had buried several months earlier. When they reached their spot, Jones called for a ritual to be performed, allowing him to pose each member of the group exactly as he pleased, whilst Hill snapped his photograph. With the noise of the shutter drowned out by Jones's loud repetitions of Welsh poetry, the ritual was completed. The two mediums pointed to a spot nearby and Pimple began to dig. Before long, he had the clue in his hands, concealed inside a tin can, welded shut at either end. Jones, or rather the spook, speaking through Jones, had Pimple spread a white handkerchief on the ground and emptied the contents of the tin on top of it. He carved off the lid of the tin with his knife and turned it upside down, pouring out a small pile of ashes. Disappointed and confused, he looked up at Jones. He tossed the tin aside, only for the spook to berate him telling him to collect the can and look again. Inside was a false bottom, which once pried open, gave way to a gold Turkish lira, wrapped in a paper note that contained a circle of Armenian characters in a clockwise circle. Pimple and the Commandant were thrilled. That night, Hill developed the first roll of camera film, hunched over in a small cupboard. Emerging back into the room, he held the roll to the light displaying three photographs perfectly captured on the film. Unearthing the second clue, supposedly buried by Triple Y, but of course really buried by Hill along with the first, was a much simpler affair as no photographs needed to be taken. Once again, the entourage of officials followed Jones and Hill to a spot outside the camp's boundaries until they were able to point to a place on the ground and another tin can was dug up. Once more, they found a gold lira inside, wrapped in a piece of paper just like the first, with a series of Armenian characters written down. Both clues were put together, and with the spook's help during a seance, Pimple and the Commandant were able to solve the ciphers, translating the Armenian letters and spelling the words South and West in the first clue. The second was a number that needed the aid of a compass, which Jones and Hill planned on stealing at the first opportunity. The two successful searches had reinforced the officials' confidence in Jones and Hill and their skill in mediumship, and they were now entirely caught up in the web of lies conjured by the fictitious spook. Therefore, when the spook suggested that Jones and Hill should meet with Doc face-to-face for medical assistance, he was ordered to visit the two men immediately. Whilst there, Jones slipped in the camera film with the damning photographs of the commandant along with the camera itself, as well as full copies of Pimple's records of the seances to date. Now came the difficult process of uncovering the third clue from the fictitious and living AAA. Naturally, their early attempts were all foiled by the distance, hampering any efforts of telepathic communication that Jones and Hill were able to muster with the aid of the spook. All of this effort was enormously strenuous to the mediums The spooked Warn Pimple. It even carried the very real risk of tearing the mediums crazy from the strain. But nevertheless, they would forge on with their efforts. In truth, the threat that Jones and Hill might be turned crazy from overexerting themselves with long-distance telepathic communication was nothing more than a backup plan, should the Commandant not see fit to allow the treasure hunt to go ahead several hundred miles from the camp, as Jones and Hill had hoped. For now, they would stick to plan A, and during the next seance, the spook deemed it necessary to remove the mediums from Yozgat, a situation which Jones and Hill feigned objection to under the guise that they were receiving fine treatment where they were and that they did not even wish to leave the camp at all. In a ridiculously acted-out night of drama, Jones and Hill carried out a spiritual attack in order to show the threat of communicating with AAA from such a distance, helping to conclude for the Commandant that the only plan was to move the mediums out of Yozgat after all. With some excitement, Jones and Hill began planning their great escape. Whilst out on a treasure hunt hundreds of miles from camp, they knocked together the rough idea of drugging their captors with morphine, kidnapping them, commandeering a boat and sailing to Cyprus. To call it an audacious plan was an understatement, but if audacity had gotten them this far, then why turn their back on the approach now? Jones and Hill decided on covering every eventuality, and slowly they began seeding the possibility that they were growing unhinged. Both men stopped bathing and they let their unkempt hair and beards grow. They put a sign up on their door refusing entry to anyone and they starved themselves for two weeks in order to lose weight. Under the guise of going on a treasure hunt, close enough to Constantinople that they could communicate with AAA, but far enough away from the town to be advantageous as a relaxing holiday that would hold the secondary benefit of allowing the struggling mediums to recuperate after their telepathic exertions, the spook suggested that they travel someplace far from Yozgat nearby the sea. The Commandant was accepting of a trip to the seaside, and all appeared to be going according to plan. At least, until the mediums were rudely awoken with the discovery that they had perhaps done their job a little too well, and the whole plan came crashing down around their ears. Throughout the whole spook saga, Pimple had always been ready and willing to go along with the spook. He had always been the commandant that had raised objections or concerns with all the orders coming from the other side. Less afraid of the spook than he was of putting his position as commandant in jeopardy, he had always been the foremost danger in the ruining of Jones and Hill's escape plans, and now, right when everything was beginning to come together in glorious fruition, it was the commandant who had spooked himself. The problem had arisen from one of Jones' friends back in the main building, who had aired his beliefs that Jones and Hill were aiming to leave the camp in order to try and escape. Both Pimple and the commandant balked at the idea. Firstly, the two men had been looking more and more bedraggled with every passing day, and secondly, they knew the real reason for their excursion, and they knew that the treasure hunt was the absolute priority of everyone involved, including the two mediums. But still, what the man had said had made him worry. Not that Jones and Hill would attempt to escape but that perhaps the words of the British officer had come from the spirit Triple O, who had been controlling him via some mysterious spiritualist force, and that perhaps it meant that the spook would somehow force them to miraculously disappear, and as such it was impossible for him to allow them to go off gallivanting in search of the treasure far from camp. It was completely bonkers, But it appeared that the all-powerful spook that Jones and Hill had impressed upon the officials for so long had a much tighter grasp over the Commandant than perhaps even they had ever realised. On the eve of the execution of the plan, Jones and Hill were forced to scrap everything and look instead to Plan B. They would have to go mad. The first task, after the bitter disappointment of the failure of Plan A, was for Jones and Hill to impress the spook's authority back over the shaken commandant. In the very next séance, the spook gave the commandant a statement that he was to give to the Ottoman doctors. I am anxious about two of my prisoners, and I want your professional advice that I may act on it. I have reason to believe that they are mentally affected, and that the English doctor is endeavouring to conceal the fact. A certain number of the prisoners, amongst whom Jones and Hill were prominent, have been studying occultism ever since they arrived. They admittedly practised telepathy and were arrested for communication with people outside on military matters. For direct evidence as to their conduct during their confinement, I refer you to my interpreter and my orderly who have seen a good deal of them. If they have become mentally unhinged, I fear they may do something desperate and would like you to send them to Constantinople where they can be properly looked after or do whatever you think is best for them. The English doctor in the statement was, of course, Doc, who had been briefed already by Jones and Hill. Both Pimple and the Commandant orderly were then ordered by the spook to give evidence to the Turkish doctors of Jones and Hill's mental disintegration. For the two mediums, they didn't much fear the Ottoman doctors. They had already spoken at length to Doc and learned all about the symptoms of clinical madness, and they were confident enough that they would be able to fool any inspectors into believing that they were suffering a mental breakdown. They then wrote a letter in scrawled, sloppy handwriting addressed to the light of the world, the ruler of the universe and protector of the poor, the sword and breastplate of true faith, his most gracious majesty, Abdul Hamid of Turkey, insisting that the entire camp was involved in a conspiracy against them and was trying to poison their food. For the next three weeks, they ate only bread and drank only tea and gave up entirely on their appearance so that when the date of their assessment rolled around, they looked every bit as sorry as they had hoped. On the morning that the doctors were due to arrive, the room that Jones and Hill had locked themselves up in was a fetid pit of unspeakable filth. The doctors spent as little time as possible examining the men. Jones spent the entire time scribbling on a stack of paper, tossing completed pages to the floor, and when asked what he was writing, he told the doctors that it was a plan to abolish England after the war was over. He also explained that his father had been trying to poison him by putting toxins in his mail. Hill, on the other hand, sat motionless in the corner the entire time. For several hours, he had been huffing a pipe relentlessly in order to make himself sick from the nicotine, and he had achieved the effect fantastically. Shortly after their visit, the doctors concluded, on official documents, that Hill was clearly suffering from melancholia, whilst Jones had a derangement in his brains. They were both ordered to be sent to Constantinople for treatment at the first opportunity. That evening, the commandant asked the spook to draft a telegram that he could send to Constantinople concerning the delivery of Jones and Hill. The very next day, Constantinople sent a short telegram back agreeing to the transfer. Jones and Hill, via the spook, had got their trip away from the camp eventually, though it had not been quite as they had first envisaged. At 10am on the 26th of April, a horse and cart arrived at Yozgat to collect Jones and Hill and take them to a hospital in Constantinople. The journey was going to be tough for the mediums, who would be forced to keep up their feigned madness for the entire duration of the trip. Despite the inability to use their homemade Ouija board during this trip, Jones explained to Pimple of how he would still be able to communicate the spook's wishes to him via the twisting of a button on his coat. And then, on the second day, he had the spook explain that he was going to control Jones and Hill and have them hang themselves during a stopover in order for their diagnoses to be taken seriously once they arrived in Constantinople. It would be up to Pimple to rescue them from their otherwise fatal end. With the orders from the spook given, the two mediums carried out the sham hanging to the best of their abilities, having spoken with Doc back at Yozgat about how best to tie the knots in the rope so as to avoid any accidental strangulation whilst they waited for Pimple to free them. To anyone desirous of quitting this mortal coil, we can offer one piece of sound advice. Don't try strangulation. Then hanging by the neck, nothing more agonising can be imagined. In the hope of finding a comfortable way of placing the noose, we had both experimented before leaving Yozgad, but no matter how we placed it, we could never bear the pain for more than a fraction of a second. When we stepped off our table in the dark at Mardin, we simply had to bear it, and though we had arranged to grip the rope with one hand so as to take as much weight as possible off the neck until we heard Moise at the door, the pain was excruciating. Moise did not at once notice that our light had gone out. I revolved slowly on the end of my rope. My right arm began to give out, and the rope bit deeper into my throat. My ears were singing. I wondered if I was going deaf, and if I could hear him try the door in time to get my hand away, if he was ever going to open the door, or if he was ever going to open the door at all. It was impossible to say how long we hung thus, revolving in the dark. I suppose it was about 90 seconds, but it seemed like 10 years. Fortunately for the two officers, Pimple did come in the room and carry out the duty given to him by the spook, admirably, shouting for help and supporting the two men, relieving them from suffocation. It was an insane plan, but one that would secure their hospital stay in Constantinople and hopefully their exchange back to England. When they arrived in Constantinople, they were enrolled at Haida Pasha Hospital and examined by a team of specialists. Jones, as someone suffering from derangement of the brains, had the far more dramatic role. He pretended to be believing that he was staying in a hotel rather than a hospital. He changed his name to Hassan Oglu Ahmad Pasha, and he shook hands enthusiastically with each new doctor that visited him, greeting him as if they were old friends. Hill was much calmer and had, perhaps, the easier job of simply reading his Bible quietly and breaking down in tears on special occasions. By the end of their six-weeks-long stay, Jones had managed to convince the doctors that he was likely suffering from general paralysis of the insane, which had manifested from a fictional bout of syphilis that he had caught at the age of 18, whilst Hill had convinced them that he had acute religious melancholia. Any celebrations on the part of the two mediums would have had to wait, however, as their departure from Turkey aboard the exchange ship bound for England was delayed for six months. Six months was a long time to wait in hospital for anyone, but it must have seemed even longer, given that their feigning madness had to be kept up every last second. It almost proved fatal for Hill, who suffered from a particularly hard bout of dysentery during their wait. By the time of their release from hospital in exchange with England, Jones and Hill managed to return home just two weeks before the armistice with Turkey was signed, signalling the end of war. When Jones and Hill met once more on English soil, Jones spoke to Hill. We've been through a good deal, old chap, and for very little. Never mind, replied Hill. We did our best. All the while that Jones and Hill were stuck in hospital, before the end of the war, life had continued on at Yozgat. For the Commandant, he finally received everything he'd ever feared when 26 British officers escaped the camp, leading to the discovery of the photographs taken by Hill and the subsequent trial and court martial that saw him ejected from his position. Pimple was convinced it was all punishment by the spook, for him digging in the grounds without permission from the spirits to do so. Before leaving the hospital, Jones told Pimple, via the spook of course, that the treasure hunt was to be temporarily postponed due to the same subordination of the commandant, and in the meantime the two were to be sent back to England to recuperate. He did assure Pimple though that he would be back in time, Of course, they never did return to Turkey, and despite several letters sent to Jones several years after the war, within which Pimple asked with some desperation if he would be returning to commence their hunt soon, no treasure was ever uncovered. So that was the frankly truly bizarre story of Jones and Hill and their escape from Yozgat. And we'll talk about that a little bit after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh takes the hassle out of mealtime this spring by delivering pre-portioned ingredients and easy to prepare recipes right to your door. Skip the checkout lines and get outside in the warmer weather because HelloFresh has dinner covered. It's no worries if you're not a pro in the kitchen. HelloFresh's foolproof recipes arrive pre-portioned and easy to prepare. In just a few steps, which is what I like about HelloFresh. Now I've lived alone for mm, about twenty odd years now, and uh, I can say that you know I've I've got pretty good in the kitchen, but what I haven't got pretty good at is uh, my my repertoire. If I can be so bold as to call it that, is about three meals on sort of infinite repeat forever, and that's purely down to the fact that I'm just kind of I, I like cooking. But I'm just too lazy to really look up new things and and then go shopping for them, find all the right ingredients, get them home, work out they're all the wrong sizes and all the wrong things. All of that's gone with HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get new recipes all pre-portioned out for you. So, you know, you're not going to get home from the supermarket and realise that You've bought like five ingredients and none of them fit together and they're all the slightly wrong thing. It's the wrong type of cream or it's the wrong type of sauce or or whatever. And that for me is where HelloFresh really shines. It makes interesting food easy to cook for people who, like me, enjoy cooking, but perhaps not enough to sort of make interesting meals. But I can make interesting meals with HelloFresh. So as mentioned, you get all the ingredients delivered right to your door for recipes that you can choose from each week. If you're interested, go to hellofresh.com/darkhistories50. That's darkhistories all one word, 50, and use code darkhistories50 for 50% off plus your first box ships for free. That's 50% off plus your first box shipping free. hellofresh.com/darkhistories50. Use your code, Dark Histories fifty, and get involved with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Cheers! So, yeah, not there is some stuff to talk about in this. way. It's not a mystery or anything like that. So there's not really any sort of you know conjecture to have, but uh, there is definitely some stuff to talk about. Predominantly, it, it was a for me was a quite a, was a burning question this whole time was that this is an awful lot of effort to go to to escape a situation that is is actually not so bad i think it's probably a testament to how boring their life was that they could devise all of those plans and i think honestly the escape just gave them something to do because let okay so let's let's roll back and explain a little bit like basically although this was a prisoner of war camp and it and it wasn't you know an easy ride by any stretch of the imagination i imagine there were elements of life that were difficult this camp was not really a camp, it was a bunch of houses that, okay, they didn't have furniture, but as they admitted they made their own furniture as they went along. So as life went on, it it got better and as they were kind of afforded more sort of liberties by the officials, they actually ended up, basically they were saying that at first their food was awful, right? So by the end of their stay they had a full-on mess with people cooking like five course meals and stuff. that they were like incredibly bored, but by the end of this day, they were playing hockey on the hockey ground. They had a hunt club where they borrowed hunting dogs and went out hunting, they had a ski club where they went out skiing on the slopes. So, you know, uh, to call it a prisoner of war camp, it, it obviously. I, I, I guess being like a Western European and probably like any European, and and to be honest, probably anyone in the world, you, you consider prisoner of war camps, you think of uh, like uh, the Second World War and the German camps, right? That, that that's sort of the first sort of image that springs to your mind. I really don't think this was anything like that. Uh, I've seen pictures of the camp, and it it's 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 sort of strange in many respects. The the Ottoman army actually sent them there under the um, impression that they were sending them to, to quite nice places. <laughs> you know who you believe is is difficult here uh, and and there was a lot of problems for a lot of people but the officers were treated reasonably well and the higher ups were treated even better the higher ups were essentially sent to like uh like seaside resorts for the rest of the war um so they were treated quite well the officers were treated i think sort of middle and they had their own orderlies they were supposedly paid although it seems they weren't but otherwise, basically what I'm trying to get at is life in these camps was not as terrible as you might imagine. I still don't think it was great and I, and obviously getting home would have been better. But the interesting thing was when you read his memoirs, Jones seemed to suggest that he wanted to escape out of duty. And he suggests that it was like a duty for his country for every, for every man to try and escape. So if you're imprisoned it was your duty to your country to try and escape and get home which i i I found quite amusing and so that made me wonder like was that really the reason that he was escaping because he was kind of hung up on this duty to escape or was it just the fact that he was so unbelievably bored that it just gave him something to do and i sort of think it was probably the latter i think he was just bored because otherwise there's not really a great deal of reason for him to escape the only other reason you can possibly think of is they didn't know how long the war was going to last. So potentially they they thought we could be here for like 20, 25 years. I think that's pretty unlikely, but they could have thought that, you know, they could have at least thought they could have been there for the next five, 10 years, whatever. So, you know, I, I guess that was driving them along as well. But it does seem weird that they tried to escape because, you know, realistically you think um, Yozgat was probably better than the Siege of Kut, you know, where horses were eating their own tails and then they would eat these malnourished like skinny diseased horses because they'd run out of food i'd imagine that that the prison camp was probably better than the war anyway why he escaped is probably not here not there It was just an interesting kind of side that, that got me thinking now i mentioned his memoirs and I do recommend if you want to read more about this then definitely give them a read. They're really interesting um, and th- there is more to the story. There's more detail to the story than I could fit, obviously, in one podcast and, and it's absolutely bonkers the level of detail that they mapped out and planned out with the with the quote-unquote spook. Um, but it is important to remember, if if you do go ahead and read his memoirs, that they're written obviously by him, so they're very much biased on his side of the story, and that th- they're sort of of a time, right? So they were published like just after the First World War, and he's a colonial British officer. You can imagine how he spoke of the 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 the, the Ottoman army and the, the Turkish people in particular. And, and this is really interesting, right? He constantly referred to them as as like wily Orientals or something along like those lines he would say like oh you know you've got to be careful because they have the devious oriental mind and th- and things like this which is obviously incredibly like xenophobic if not just straight racist right um but of course it was written like say in 1918 by a colonial british officer you can imagine su- you can imagine already his superiority complex over the east right and the people of the east uh you know, he'd been a magistrate in Burma and you can only imagine how much he'd lauded it over that lot for like years before, right? What I found interesting about this viewpoint of his though is that when you read his book, he, he doesn't really credit himself in any way or like, or like his own genius. Like he quite often credits Hill for his brilliant sort of sleight of hands and things like that, but he doesn't really credit himself for coming up with this ingenious plan. Despite the fact that it really was an ingenious plan, But instead, he sort of credits the fact that because the Ottoman army and the Turkish guards were Turkish, they were sort of easy to be duped because at the end of the day, he was this sort of like superior British colonial, right? Um, You know, and so he believed that, you know, he believed that. And because of that, he believed that duping them was not such a difficult task. And so he constantly um sort of doesn't give himself the credit that i think he deserves because instead he just sort of writes it off as just like a simple thing to do to like trick these kind of like crazy orientals um which again i say it's it's obviously like based in like blatant racism but but nevertheless i, I thought it was just a funny observation that that, that that because of his sort of racist attitude he had this 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 sort of viewpoint on the whole thing um but yeah his his memoirs are worth reading but it's worth bearing that in mind and and also i think you'll probably notice what I, you know i just mentioned if you do read them um they they're actually they're, so his memoirs are, are called the road to endor and they are freely available on the internet and and yeah i, I definitely recommend uh, getting them and i think if you do read them so the, the last sort of point that i want to talk about i guess and it's not really a big deal but sort of knocks on slightly from what i just mentioned is that Pimple in the story, and I might be wrong about this, but I feel that there was a kind of endearment between Jones and Hill, or at least Jones and Pimple. Uh, certainly there was endearment between Pimple and Jones. and And after the fact, you know, Pimple wrote Jones some letters. He wrote him like three letters and Jones never replied to them. And the letters are asking him, and the letters are, for the most part, sort of desperate attempts to get Jones to come to find out if Jones was ever coming back to Turkey to help him find the treasure because unbelievably like every everybody in this situation believed that the spooks were real right until the end even when the truth was staring them right in the face um, and many times Jones actually told people straight I made this up and they still didn't believe him and were like nah there must have been something to the spooks but anyway back on track in these letters Pimple asked Jones Not only about the treasure, he asked him, you know, how he was doing, and 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 he showed like what I sort of felt was like genuine uh, concern over Hill's conditions and things like that, and and wanting to know that Jones and Hill were both sort of safe and sound. And like you say, part of that could be because he, he obviously wanted them to come back to Turkey, and he wanted them to be safe and sound so that he could be rich and all powerful when he finds this treasure, but. Partly, I think he was just did have. I, I think that the, the the three men just spent a lot of time together, and I think they had built up a, a certain rapport. and I, And it made me wonder if the way Jones talks about Pimple is, is not very nice for a lot of the time, and it's only sort of like between the lines that you read this endearment into it. And so I wonder if it came back to the fact that because he's this kind of colonial old racist that has to sort of like you know keep up appearances, especially. When he's writing about his captors, I wonder if he sort of talks about Pimple in this mean way, because he feels he's got to keep up this kind of racist appearance, you know. Um, and in fact, he he genuinely did have a, a sense of endearment for him. I don't know, or maybe just absolutely hated him because he was, you know, an official in Yozgad. I don't know. Um, so anyway, but it, that was just an interesting little aside that I I found when I read the memoirs. Anyway, um, and yeah, maybe maybe you'll sort of find little interesting bits like that as well if, if you read them um yeah aside that that's about that I do want to say uh, just a quick thank you to the uh the Turkish community who work in my local shop uh who I visited a couple of times to ask pronunciation of things and also to find out about Yozgad and the area and stuff like that and they uh they gave me some really interesting um information about The area, like you know, personal information about the area. So, yeah, thanks very much uh, to those guys. I know one of them actually does listen to the podcast on occasion, but um, probably I'm just throwing this thank you into a black hole, but it's the thought that counts, isn't it? Anyway, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email address. You can also contact me uh, via social media, all of that is in the show notes or on the website darkhistories.com. And on there, you'll also find ways of uh, supporting the podcast. All the ways you can support. There's lots of different ways you can support. It's, it's not all just a you know a, a financial beg for uh, you to join my patron. There are other ways that you know you can support that don't involve uh, money at all, like you know so leaving reviews and, and things like that. But anyway, all of that is on the website. There's also merch and books and all that sort of stuff. I don't really know. I'm just rambling, you know. So as always, we're gonna cut it there and I'll see you in a couple of weeks until then thanks very much for listening I hope you enjoyed it take care and sleep tight